He don't know how we do our job. Be honest. Interpret is inherently unpredictable because people are weird. Yeah, as you can see, Jonathan is channeling his inner Jaja Gabo tonight. Where did that come from? Whenever you read these lists of jobs that will be taken away by AI, mm. the lack they say that will go to AI is that of AI researchers. I don't think that we have to actually worry for our jobs anytime soon. Mm. Okay, it's been nice talking to you. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> If we accept that at some point machines may be able to do that basic language transfer thing, what do humans do that's not that's not just that? But if we mess this up and people think Google can take over, it's only our fault. We are starting our online event and tonight we are glad to welcome Troublesome Turps. Jonathan Downey, Alexander Drexel and Alexander Gansmeyer who will hold a special episode of their podcast and are going to talk about machine interpreting. Our today's meeting is going to be hosted by me, Stanislav Bogdanov. And me, Irina Wieser. Thank you so much to uh, Stan and to Irina for the lovely introduction. And welcome, everyone. Welcome to this very special part of the UT conference. And welcome to this very special 18th episode of the Troublesome Purps podcast. It's actually our first live show. And uh, yay, <laughs> we've been dreaming about and planning uh, to do one of these live episodes. Uh, this one is a, an online live one, but still very special, of course. It's part of the UTIC webinar series, as we've just heard, bringing you knowledge and training from translation and interpreting experts. So not from us, but from all the other people you've heard on the webinar series before. So if I can just introduce myself, I'm Alexander Drexel, podcaster, staff interpreter, tech junkie, and founder of the Translator and Interpreter Speakers List, my most recent project. And joining us live from beautiful, beautiful Bavaria, we have the master of memes, interpreting memes, to be precise, freelance conference interpreter, Alexander Gansmeyer. Guten Abend. Hi, everyone. It's nice to be here live joining you guys from Munich. And I actually heard our horrible weather moved all the way to the Ukraine tonight. So I don't know how to feel about that. But um, yeah, my name is Alex Gansmeyer. I'm a freelance interpreter for German and English in Munich. I'm a board member of the German Association of Conference Interpreters, as well as an active member of AIC. And yeah, I make interpreting memes because I like to laugh at myself. That's just one fun fact. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> Yeah, since you were talking about the wintry weather, uh, we have somebody joining us from wintry Scotland, the purveyor of puns, the thinker of thoughts, freelance conference interpreter and book author, Jonathan Downey. Good evening, Jonathan. How are you? Good evening. It's great to be here. We had snow, but the ground was so wet, the snow decided to melt, which tells you everything that you need to know about Scottish weather. Um, and about it's actually people. incredible. I was going to explain to people that um, one of the part of uh, Troublesome Terps lore is that we have never had all three of us in the same room at the same time. It's true. So I think this is special that we're actually in people's living rooms at the same time. <laughs> That's true. So yeah. Best place to let the Troublesome Terps from where, but you know, there we go. And no, Scottish people don't usually wear this around their necks. It, it's my attempt to be Christmassy. <laughs> Yeah, as you can see, Jonathan is channeling his inner Jaja Gabo tonight, uh, whereas I have just put up my stocking. <laughs> it's empty for the moment, but I hope it's going to be filled to the brim very soon. Anyway, <laughs> moving on to the actual topic of tonight. Were you going to say something about the Christmas decoration, Jonathan? I was going to say that one of us doesn't have any Christmas decorations. I am waiting for no, but like an elf. I have our lovely Troublesome Terps pin, and it is also red and white. So I feel like that was very Christmassy of myself. Yeah, it's very Christmassy. It's a very, very Christmassy button. And uh, so you're basically the elf on the shelf tonight, Alexander. Is that true? That's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just to make sure we don't do any more bad things than we usually do on the show. That's right. It's very difficult for us because this is live and we, we can't edit out all the silly stuff that we say before we actually get started with the usual episode. But we should try our best now. And as indicated already, today's topic, today's show has an actual topic, which is a topic that, that we actually covered in our very first episode, which is called Dictionaries on Legs, which we are not, of course. Um, 
because the whole idea of the Troublesome Tubs podcast was uh, to have a place where we can discuss troublesome topics and topics that keep interpreters up at night. So if the hype is to be believed, which it is not, we should all be dreaming of super intelligent bots and a life of unemployment, or maybe rather having nightmares of that. Um, you may have heard of the Google Pixel 2 and the smartphone with instant voice translation in the headphones. We have Skype launching with a conversation translator. We have a PowerPoint translation service, Google Translate. Should we all be looking for new careers? I don't know. What do you think, guys? Yeah, I don't really think so. No, to be quite honest, nah. I mean, I was actually listening to our first episode again, you know, to, to prepare and kind of get into the mood. And nothing much has changed in terms of what I think, which is quite astounding because our first episode was quite a while ago. So I, I was actually a bit surprised that nothing much has changed. But yeah, I mean, you were saying it's it's basically on the tip of everyone's lips at the moment because Google is doing big things. And then you have Apple going into translation, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft. So all of these big, big players are pushing into the translation sphere, which in, for tech companies usually also means interpreting, which obviously we know that that's obviously not the same thing. But they try to kind of cover all of their bases. Um, but to give just a short snippet ahead of time, I don't think that we have to actually worry for our jobs anytime soon. Mm. Okay. It's been nice talking to you. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, if anybody has to go, this is pretty much it. <laughs> you can never talk about any topic for less than an hour. It's kind of standard form for us. No, I, I, to pick up on what Alex has said, I have seen an awful lot of hype and it's actually reminding me a bit of the hype around Bitcoin, which is, you know, people get this shiny new technology. Uh, lots of people throw lots of money at it and pretend that it's not the same as every other bubble that we've ever had. Yeah. Um, the history of technological development, certainly in translation, are massive hype. This will take over the world. Everyone needs this. And then eventually it settles down to the professional translators going, hmm, we can make a bit more extra money out of this. Mm -hmm. um, and to be honest, the testing that I've seen outside of the hype has been incredibly underwhelming. I mean, anyone promoting machine interpreting based on blue scores doesn't realize how artificial blue scores are. And when real-life translators and interpreters have tried the kit, or even real-life journalists have tried the kit, the results have been kind of boring, almost. It's basically like, yeah, it's an improvement, but it's not the paradigm shift that everyone's been talking about. We know the reasons why, but I think it's it's helpful for us to keep our eyes and remember. My rule is: believe the researchers, ignore the marketeers. Yeah, I think that that's probably a good point to, to stay discussing for a for a few minutes. That the whole hype cycle and stuff like that, because as you said, Alex, uh, very correctly, our first episode was almost two years ago now, and we talked about a few devices such as the Pilot, the little red head set or, or earpiece um, that was already hyped for a while when we did the first episode it's still being hyped it still hasn't shipped as far as i can tell or as far as i know because i know someone who has ordered a pair of them and st they still haven't received them and they have actually collected several million i think 4.5 million us dollars on crowd on a crowdfunding platform on kickstarter they still haven't shipped and the latest things i hear about it are not that great because it's things like well Actually, it's not quite simultaneous. You have to wait. And no, you actually, you still need to use your smartphone. You cannot just use the headphones, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole, the whole hype thing really is, is very, uh, a very tricky thing. And I, I read an interesting article actually just today about the whole hype in relation to artificial intelligence, which, intelligence, which is very closely related to our topic today. And then and, and some of the tech pretends to be or says that they use artificial intelligence. So it, but it's the same hype, as you said, also, Jonathan, with, with um, Bitcoin. And in the, in the article, it said basically there are seven, they called it deadly sins, but seven problems with, with all these tech predictions in general. And one of them, just the first one, um, is known as Amara's Law. Um, and it says that we tend to overestimate the effect of a technology in the short run and underestimate the effect in the long run. And that seems to be happening um, in this case. And of course, one big thing always is uh, with tech that these companies say, well, we've solved translation, we've solved interpreting for all the languages, everything. And of course, there are a lot of asterisks that we have to attach to that message and that we have to discuss tonight, I guess. From what I've seen from uh, we've 
probably put an article in the show notes from a, a game localizer. And I, I've seen some articles from people who've test driven the deep L and basically the big engines behind these advances. And I think what people have found is if you have enough data and you have a predictable enough te- text, then neural machine translation produces better results than statistical machine translation, which is kind of like saying if you have enough money and you have enough time, sweeping your floor with a toothbrush is better than brushing it with your hair. <laughs> um, it, it's not setting the world alight. And I, I think having seen what's happened in translation where you have, I know one translator who basically programs machine translation engine, engines for clients and a lot of stuff that's going in the file gets sent to him and he makes good money doing text for the file. I think maybe the best that we can say is perhaps in the future, some incredibly predictable interpreting policy jobs. And we've all had the jobs where you know what everyone's going to say before they say it. Those jobs, there may be a degree of automation that that can give us help. I can't see them being able to hand over because every job that I think I know what's going to happen, something crazy happens. <laughs> um, interpreting is inherently unpredictable because people are weird. <laughs> That's absolutely true. No, but I, I was just going to go on two points. I think I might make it three points. Let's see how this goes. But um, <laughs> first of all, the whole hype train thing. I think it's at the moment, I mean, we were talking two years ago about how certain things were hype, but I think at the moment it's really the, the big topic in the industry just because all these big players are getting behind it. And obviously there's lots and lots of advertising budget that Google are putting into it, that Apple are putting into it and whoever else. And I mean, Google just released these phones with the pixel buds. And I think we might be talking about those because they actually had a very prominent um, display at Google's annual press conference, which kind of puts a huge spotlight on the whole situation. So I just think the fact that these big players are now getting into that market is once again kind of reinvigorating that discussion. So I think that's why the hype train is kind of chugging along steadily and probably accelerating as we speak. Um, And on your point, Jonathan, the statistical translation versus the neural translation, I do think that neural network translations are indeed much better, as you've mentioned. But the thing is, too, and obviously neural networks and machine learning and all of that is coming into machine translation, machine interpreting, um, and kind of that, that intersection of the two. But at the end of the day, what you have at the moment passing as machine interpreting is machine translation being read out by Siri. So you always have to kind of wonder, because as you've mentioned, like there is no way that the machines can be flexible flexible enough to keep up with an inherently chaotic tr- profession such as interpreting. And I actually did the test with the Google Translate app just because I think it's probably the most prolific one there is. Everybody kind of has it on their phone. Everybody's used it before. Um, and I tried to read out a little um, like paragraph from one of the from a press conference that I found on YouTube, and it really struggled hard. It really struggled hard to understand my my language, and I was just sitting there by myself, you know, in the office. There were no background noises. It was just me, no other speakers, no background noises, and it kind of well, it basically just kind of um, transcribed everything in a way. And then at the end, when I was done reading, when it was done transcribing, it reshuffled the sentence again. Then it started the translation. Then it reshuffled the translation until it thought it actually had a good fit. And there is no way that anyone in their right mind would ever say that this is anything close to simultaneous interpreting. Like this is actually a bad ripped off version of consecutive interpreting and it's doing a bad job at that too. Mm. So I don't know. That's, that's just kind of my point. And yeah. Um, <laughs> was underestimating its long-term effect. Mm. And I think the problem with punditry is every pundit is going to say that their particular corner is going to be fine. For instance, whenever you read these lists of jobs that will be taken away by AI, Mm. the last job they say that will go to AI is that of AI researchers. (laughs) Um, It tells you something about their perhaps uh, inherent biases. And I think as human interpreters, we have to realize that AI will do something and machine learning will do something. And I think we would be fools to look at it and go, ah, it's not going to matter. There will be clients for whom a slow read out Google Translate will be enough. And that's fair enough. There will be clients for whom the existence of machine interpreting under whichever guise means that they try to negotiate down their fees. 
I think actually the biggest impact of machine interpreting on the profession could be that interpreters realize they have to do PR and marketing. I mean, that, that's shock horror for an entire generation of interpreters. But if we mess this up and people think Google can take over, it's only our fault. Yeah. That's a good point. We we should get to that uh, a bit later. I wanted to do a few follow up remarks on what you you guys said. So first of all, on the whole neural machine translation, I, I don't want to get into the details of you know statistical versus neural. But I, I went to this conference in London a couple of weeks ago, and basically the uh, the consensus right now is that neural machine translation is better. Asterisk for some language combinations. And the big problem uh, actually is that a neural machine translation reads better. So it's better in terms of fluency, but it can actually be worse when it comes to accuracy. And that's the problem because, because it reads so well and it reads nicely, you may not spot the errors that are in there in terms of content and accuracy. That, that's, that's a really big problem. Um, and again, it, it always depends on the language pair um, because Of course, there are the big languages that are well covered by technology, like English, Spanish, um, Mandarin, I believe. I don't know. So the big languages in any case and the smaller languages usually are not that well um, served, quite simply. And one thing that you said, Alex, also, um, I found that interesting that very often um, the, the speech recognition stumbles when there's bad audio and We often have bad audio <laughs> in a setup, and it's, of course, very tiring for us, but we usually can manage, and we can sort of fill in the gaps, whereas a machine is usually very quickly thrown by that and just cannot cope. So that's that's an issue, of course. Absolutely. And even with perfect audio, sometimes it really struggles. So, you know, I think that just goes yeah. to show how much catching up there is, I guess, in a way, or how much they rely on an absolutely perfect clinical setup. Mm. And I think this is where um, I have to be careful because I'm a field researcher in interpreting and I have a lot of time and a lot of respect for those who do experimental research in interpreting. But this is the divide between field testing and lab testing. Lab testing, you deliberately control the variables and slow everything down and make everything perfect because that's the point of a laboratory that you're only trying to change one thing at once. You go into the field and you realize that your ni nice, neat classifications in the laboratory fall apart. And I think this is where we need to be very careful that we have to respect the laboratory results coming out from neural machine and, uh, translation and interpreting. We have to respect the laboratory results coming out from, you know, Googling people like that and, and read their papers carefully. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, we have to make people aware that the lab is not the field. And in a You know, um, I had a, a recent interpreting job about a few weeks ago where um, as part of the job, we were going on a factory tour. And I think most um, freelance interpreters have done factory tours. And the day uh. you get audio <laughs> in a working factory is the day that the queen is doing the interpreting for you. It just yeah. does not happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, the, the thing is, is that we're, if we start telling, the, uh, telling people the realities of interpreting, Even the machine interpreting researchers look at you and go, that sounds hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because it is. <laughs> That's yeah, why we get picked up. The whole field testing, lab testing is, is so easy. Just look at the, the, the marketing for a car and the emission. The real life results that you get for a mixing of performance and so <laughs> I, I read that the other day. If you buy a new TV and you look at the, the energy performance, they usually test it with the sound off and the brightness all the way turned down. So you might as well turn the TV off altogether. There's no point in, in doing that. And I think that's exactly what we saw as well with the demo that you mentioned, Alex, that the demo of the Pixel Buds during the I.O. conference, because, of course, they, I mean, they have rehearsed that for hours on end, I would assume. They probably tweaked the copy or the, the text that they were using for the conversation. It also wasn't a real-life demo, um, because usually what happens with the Pixel, pixel Buds is that You have the, correct me if I'm wrong, you have the earbuds in your ear, you have the phone in front of you, and usually only you can hear the interpreting. And in the demo, everyone could hear it because they had they had hooked it up to the sound system. So, you know. That's true. That's true. Yeah, absolutely true. And I think the, the funny thing is, too, especially about the Pixel Buds, if 
really depends on what kind of article you read. Some people <laughs> say it's the best thing since sliced bread, and other people yeah. say it's complete rubbish. And the thing is, if you read the articles, it, ve- it becomes very apparent how these people tested it. Because uh, during Google's press conference, their testing was, I think, with Norwegian or Finnish or something. It was Swedish, I think. Swedish? Yeah. And um, yeah, it was basically like, hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for being here. And, you know, it was like these really short sentences where it yeah. didn't even occur to anyone that the that the language processing um, engine was basically just transcribing it and then reading it out because the sentences were, were so short, so it could do that very quickly. But um, those people who tested it like that, so the, there's tons of, of uh, YouTube videos out there. I think mm-hmm. even in the BBC, some guy was running around the BBC offices talking to different employees. and. That was quite hilarious, but the thing is, they all thought it worked adequately well because they were all doing really short, really simple sentences. So like, hey, how are you? How did you get to London? How do you like to work here? Mm-hmm. And um, that's all relatively simple stuff, which Google Translate handles fine. It handles it okay. They were all kind of laughing because sometimes it got the sentences hilariously wrong, but with enough um, imagination, you could kind of figure out what it actually meant. But that was fine. But then there was one really interesting article, a really good read that I can only recommend um, by Forbes magazine. Mm-hmm. And it was about an, a journalist who really took the pixel buds and, and basically Google Translate as a whole um, out into their trip to, I think it was Germany. I think it was Brandenburg. Yes. And they were running around and really talking to people. And they were saying, first of all, it's very weird, as you've mentioned, Alex, because only they can actually hear the interpretation. Mm -hmm. So the other person doesn't really know what's happening because you're listening to the translation, translated version of whatever they were saying, but they don't know that. So you're just kind of like staring at them, (laughs) listening to what they're saying. And it's very strange. And... Also, what I thought was very interesting in that particular description, the the journalist was actually saying that there is a very strange shift in the power dynamics of the conversation. Because usually when you're doing this bilateral type of interpreting, which, let's face it, this is basically what Google Translate does as, as the app. It's basically a bilateral conversation interpreting situation. Um, if only one person hears the entire part whether they understand it or not, um, it shifts the power balance because they might not actually like the way that you uh, phrase certain things. They might not like the way you use your your expressions or maybe you become too, more, too emotional or not emotional enough in your rendition. And so it kind of takes away from that communicative environment, even though they might not understand what you're saying. So I thought that was, that was a very interesting, very specific point. And I thought that's a point that only someone can make who really tried to, you know, put it through the ringer. All of this is really asking a couple of questions. The first question is, is it theoretically possible that at some point a machine might be sophisticated enough to provide an adequate translation read out of human speech? And I think we have to conclude that at some point, even though language is kind of glitchy, <laughs> that's awesome. conceivable. You know, that, that that's imaginable that we might get to a point where um, basic conversation, straightforward conversation at least, is translatable. And I think if we if we get to the end and say, okay, one day we think machines could deal with language enough that they could do a basic conversation. And that Forbes magazine, he was talking about how in the previous incarnation, he'd use Google Translate to have a conversation with a taxi driver. And he felt as if the conversation had happened in English. Fine. Yeah, it worked much yeah. better. That was the funny thing. Yeah, without <laughs> the pixel parts, funnily enough. So, so here's the thing. If that's conceivable and that's doable, then what is the next stage? Well, we have to conclude then that if we're saying that interpreters won't be replaced, but machines can do that level of conversation, mm. then interpreting is language plus something else. To me, it would stand to reason that it's the plus something else that is going to matter more than the language, which is counterintuitive because we're all trained to privilege the language, to be accurate, yes. to not miss anything out. And actually, okay, I have to slip in. I'm, I'm writing a book on the, the, uh, the uh, interpreting in the AI-dominated future here. But we have to ask the question. It's not been accepted for publication yet, so you'll have to wait and see. Um, but... If we accept that at some point machines may be able to do that basic language transfer thing, what do humans do that's not, that's not just that? Mm. Um, and what does interpreting look like when there's a device that can do that? 
Because one day, I don't think it's impossible that Google or someone will come out with a, a device that will do conversation fairly well, provided it doesn't go too, too crazy. What, what are humans doing then? Hmm. Well, I, I, maybe that's one step too far already. I wanted to go back to another thing because you, you mentioned this concept of a basic conversation. And I think that's a very interesting question. And by the way, I just want to say with a real pet peeve of mine is when these gadget makers, when they do their demo videos, it's usually some lewd guy trying to pick up a girl in a bar or something like that, which is really annoying. And I absolutely hate it anyway, but that wasn't the Well, that's what you get interpreters for, though, no? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, but I wanted what I wanted to talk about for a second was uh, the the basic conversation because sometimes people say, well, you know, when you travel and you go abroad, then you can use this little gadget or Google Translate, and for example, you need to go to the pharmacy, and and I said, oh my god, no, there's no way I'm using one of these gadgets in China to get me the meds that I need. Who knows what they're going to get me? You know, absolutely out of the question. So that's a bit of a question. What is a basic conversation? I mean, a, a quick chat with a taxi driver is probably fine. Although I, as an interpreter and someone who's sort of aware of multicultural issues, would probably be very careful because who knows what the machine, you know, <laughs> to, what, what, it, what it says or what it thinks I'm saying. And then maybe I'm offending that person and they kick me out of the taxi in the middle of nowhere. Anyway, right. lots, lots of issues there, at least from my perspective. I think that's absolutely spot on, but I think the whole issue is as well, when we're talking about basic conversation, again, I, if we look at it in the context that are they going to take our jobs from us, I don't think that's actually happening because no one's ever going to hire an interpreter for a basic conversation with the taxi driver in Brandenburg. Like that is just not happening. It's so, not very practical. <laughs> it's not very practical, you know, <laughs> but um Yeah, so that's why, you know, even if they actually do fix their, their headphones and even if Google Translate can actually improve it by, by a lot, it's not going to get, at least definitely not in the foreseeable future, to the point where you can use it even in a bilateral sense. It doesn't even have to be simultaneous. So if we, if we take that out of the equation, I still don't think that we're going to be in a, in a position in the foreseeable future where you can use it for contract negotiations mm. or <laughs> machine trainings or factory tours you know there's like an infinite number of, of different examples that i could give you and i don't mm. think that it could it could do the basic um conversation you know it could say i don't know in india in the restaurant hello i would like to have a glass of wine i'm sure that would be perfectly fine but then again who knows what the machine thinks i said maybe it's going to say hello i would like to have a glass of your worst tap water i don't know <laughs> please give me the filter tap water <laughs> i i think going back to the pharmacy conversation i think it's a, a The, the question is, what are the alternatives? So, for instance, my German is very, very basic. I'm trying to, to get it better. And I was in Germany a few years ago, and I had a cough. Now, my German isn't good enough. I still don't know what the German for a cough is. I'd imagine it's about 24 letters long. I don't know. Um, and thankfully, my sister was there and was able to explain. Now, if she hadn't been there and the pharmacist hadn't spoken English, which I know never happens in Germany, but anyway, imagine if I'd been in a country where the pharmacist doesn't speak English. Um, the difference, I would have quite happily used my phone to go, <coughs> and then, you know, get the phone to translate. He's probably contagious run away now. But equally, something more graphic, for instance, had I had um, hemorrhoids, the, the alternative to, to the Google Pixel Buds is pointing. So, you know, it, Kind of oh, have to think. There. <laughs> but but the, this is it's, it's a silly example. But this is the. No, but you're right. Yeah. <laughs> What a great new world we live in. Some <laughs> <laughs> terrors. But, the, but this, this is the issue. So, like, um, I remember someone say, saying to me, "Language, what do you do?" And they said, "Well, you know, you can communicate without knowing the language." And what they went meant was, you could go to a bakery and point at a thing and say one. That's mm. assuming that in that culture, that's not an offensive gesture. But it's <laughs> a case of, you know, in the, the infinite number of interpreting situations, where do machines go? Um, and for instance, there is now a market for machine-translated texts. We might hate that market. We might dislike it. There's also a market for um, translators to integrate machine-translated output into their um, workflow as suggestions. 
So again, you have this thing of, well, where it's going to be here. We can't just you know, go, hi, Google, you're idiots. It's not going to happen. It's going to be here. Mm. But what do we do? Um, and I think that this is the thing of, we might think as interpreters, there's no way I would go to a pharmacy and go, um, I've got a really bad cold. Can you give me something? We as interpreters wouldn't, but the ordinary person in the street probably would say, I think I have the flu. Can I have tablets, please? I have a, a nice rabbit, you know. <laughs> the ordinary person in the street doesn't realize that they've just asked the pharmacist out for a date and they actually have a flu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's another point as well, which is the, the tricky problem of the the, un, um, the internet connection, because for most of the devices, you actually yeah. need an internet connection. Um, there is one, I think, the, the Ely translator, which says it can do some translation in some language pairs without an internet connection. Um, that device has been promised for a while. It still hasn't shipped, although they're still uh, collecting pre-orders or orders, whatever. So hmm. that's going to be interesting. Well, I mean, I think even for Google Translate, you can download some language pairs and then it works more or less well, but it always struggles with the transcription because it usually relies on the cloud for that. So it's it's yeah. a bit if yeah, and then you know what if you actually go to a country and you rely on that in order to get your medicine for your cough, and then all of a sudden your internet doesn't work or the app I don't know mm. crashes or something. So it's just all a bit iffy. Mm. Yeah, and I think the technology stack is also an interesting point, and and I don't I'm not really sure if we've covered it in in the initial episode. So um, just stop me if you've heard this before. But I think the the idea is that there's basically three steps. So you need to have the speech recognition, which is always difficult when there's a Scotsman talking. <laughs> and then uh, you you have this uh, recognized text. Basically, you have a machine translation of that recognized text, and then the translated text is synthesized. So then you have text to speech, and that you usually requires a bit more processing power, which is why most of the devices need an internet connection than it's done on Google's um, service. So just for our completeness sake, I guess. I think this is interesting because being a, a nerdy interpreting researcher, this, understand the text, process it, and then synthesize speech. There's a huge amount of resemblance to the way that cognitive interpreting researchers used to understand human interpreting. I say used to because things are beginning to move and I don't want to give away an entire chapter of my book here. <laughs> but the point is, is that it's interesting because the way that they're, the way the technologists are treating interpreting is the way that our researchers, many of our researchers were treating interpreting up to, in fact, most were treating it that way, at least up to the mid 1990s. Some are still treating it that way now, because if you want to do an experiment, you know, um, what do interpreters do when you tend to assume that it's this input process output thing going on? So it's interesting that the technologists are actually something like 15 to 20 years behind the interpreting experts. A lot of things to me, but I think it's interesting. And I wonder how many interpreters, if we were to you know, pin them down and say, how do you think you interpret, would come up with exactly the same, I hear the speech, I decode it, I process it and then then I put in another language. Well, comes back to my question of if that's all interpreting is, mm. maybe we should worry about machines. Now we're saying we shouldn't. Why? <laughs> no, no, no. But is, is this the, is this the whole is this the whole thing with the interpreter's head or brain being a black box? Is that the because the funny thing is that in in artificial intelligence. All the neural networks, they're basically a black box too. So even the researchers don't really know what's going on in there, which is a very interesting sort of parallel to uh, an interpreter's brain. Is it, was that what you were referring to, Jonathan? Um, not so much that as the fact that the dominant paradigm, yes, I'm a researcher, I can say paradigm and not laugh. Um, the dominant paradigm in machine interpreting research is the same as what used to be the dominant paradigm in interpreting research. Mm. Um, and so what I'm kind of pointing out is they are almost, they're going through a very similar journey to the one that we went through. And it was only with the work of people like Cecilia Vadenshaw, Cynthia Roy, Graham Turner, arguably Jemaine Napier and people like that, that we started realizing that the interpreter's head, yes, is a black box, but the interpreter's head is doing a whole lot more than processing language. Mm. Um, I believe it was probably uh, Cynthia Roy or Cecilia Vadenshaw who early started to tell us that interpreting isn't just language transfer. Interpreters are gatekeepers. Interpreters are people who decide on turns to speak 
on yeah. what gets interpreted, on how it gets interpreted. They're making social decisions. There's a bunch of other stuff going on in our brain that we tend not to like to talk about. In fact, there was a paper out this time last year in the interpreting, the very top journal in interpreting, basically saying, whoa, 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 whoa let's not talk about interpreters being active participants. Uh, yeah. Actually, it turns out that if we don't talk about interpreters being active participants, we're giving Google a free go. So, yeah, yeah. take your break. Well, well you know what another good point... Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, but I think another fav- another interesting point that you just made, Jonathan, is that we're not only providing the the language, and you were saying that earlier as well that we're, you know we're not just doing languages. What are we doing on top of everything? And I think a lot of people are uh, forgetting the fact that we actually provide different services. So you know whether it's you're organizing the conference equipment or you're organizing the teams, and I think one major part why people actually book professional interpreters um, is. The, the the question about the responsibility because nobody wants to be responsible you know everybody wants to outsource responsibility as much as possible to someone else and as interpreters we take on the responsibility to make sure that the communication works at any particular event and the clients pay us for that peace of mind that we provide them with our service and google wouldn't do that because if your phone doesn't work whose fault is it is it your fault is it google's fault i'm pretty sure that google would say oh no it's not us it must be you you must have a bad data connection or you didn't charge your phone properly or something else so i think that question of outsourcing responsibility and us taking that um for our clients is a huge deal for our clients but also for us you know i think that's really something that we can capitalize on outside of the plethora of other things that we actually provide for our clients. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, and that, there's another thing that I that I noticed, I mean, looking at the, the different pieces of technology that exist, because when it comes to uh, interpreter technologies, for example, glossary tools, uh, specifically, and remote interpreting solutions, there are always some uh, projects where an interpreter is involved. And for all these sort of gadgety things, I haven't seen any, not, not one project, at least not that I know of, where an interpreter or even a translator is involved. They're mostly engineers, uh, so software engineers, maybe, I don't know, maybe linguists? I'm not even sure. So that's, that's interesting to note, just. There used to be a saying in, machine, in the machine translation community that for every language you fire, your project gets 50% cheaper. <laughs> um, and it's only in the past, I think, four or five years that the machine translation people have started talking to professional translators. Mm. Again, um, largely, they have gone on the same paradigm, and there's been this assumption of how we do our, our job. Mm. The reality, again, not to give away a chapter from my book, we don't know how we do our job, to be honest. We have no clue how it works. We just know it works. Um, and we have and fun, I, We enjoy doing it. Yeah, and we have fun. Very much. You know, you admire your boothmate when they come up with a creative solution, and I don't know about anyone else, but I've looked at boothmates before and gone, where did that come from? Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> but that kind of stuff, there, there's a bit of magic and mystery about mm. interpreting, and it's lovely, and it's fun, but is there, should we be asking a question about the need to demystify some of interpreting? Like, I had clients come up to me. The most common question I get from clients is, what do you do if you don't know a word? <laughs> and it's like, okay, there, there's two answers to that. There's the official answer, and then there's the answer that if I tell you, I have to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is the thing. It's like, um, how many interpreters would be happy if a client came up, up to them at the end of a three-day event and went, you were amazing. What did you do when you didn't know the word? Uh, all the words. All of them. <laughs> We always do. Yeah, we always do. I knew that one. But Jonathan, I also just think we found the title of your book, Magic and Mystery and Interpreting. I love that. Can that be oh, it? Yeah. I would well, buy that. At the moment, it's being called Eating the Bots. But we'll see. I can always change it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little more yes. whimsical. I have a, I have a couple more points that I want to get to, but um, I, I guess we should also slowly sort of move towards the Q&A part of the session. So I, I don't know if any questions have come in already, but I would certainly encourage everyone who is watching to to Absolutely. nice comments and yeah, questions. We're good at pretending to know stuff. Exactly. That's, that's, <laughs> the, that's the fun part, usually. <laughs> One thing I wanted to, to uh, talk about is, I mean, uh, there's lots of talk about the, the parallels between translators and interpreters, and translators have been working with all these tools for a 
for several years, probably several decades by now. And and some translators are very worried that um, at some point all they all they're going to do is just post editing. So. I'm wondering, is there an interpreting equivalent of post-editing? Can there be one? Because, I mean, our, our job is so much in real time hmm. that it's probably, it's either the machines or us. I don't really see a middle ground unless we're talking about uh, technology helping us to prepare and that kind of stuff. But, I mean, just looking at these gadgets or interpreting machines or whatever, there doesn't seem to be sort of a middle ground. It's it's either us or them, I guess. What, what do you think? I think that's a very good point. And I also think, so a friend of mine is a speech to text interpreter. So she basically does like live subtitling Mm -hmm. and they do that in a team. And then, you know, one of them basically either, either she does like a speech to text type thing with, for example, dragon dictation. And Mm -hmm. then the other one post edits it, or they actually type it down and then they have different uh, keyboard combinations and then they can post edit that. But the thing is, you can only post edit, written language so as soon as there's a spoken word out there it's out there you can't take it back and say oh actually hang on that one word i would like to change that and i would also like to flip the order of that sentence so that doesn't really work and that's why i'm kind of with you on that because i maybe i'm just not creative enough maybe we're all of us aren't creative enough Uh, i just couldn't picture how a solution like that could look like i really don't Mm. i thought there may be some middle ground and this is what i was talking to a computer science person about recently and that is the idea that um that the computers might be smart enough to be able to compare what we are hearing with what we've already got in our term banks or with some large corpus and Mm. deliberately pick up the rare words which will tend to be the technical terminology and do a term lookup on the fly because one of the weaknesses of term lookups on the fly and the sad thing is no matter how good you are no matter how prepared you are you will need to get your phone out at some point maybe not in the the commission because you guys are probably amazing but every job i've had there have been terrible except you've had to do on your phone or on your tablet mm-hmm. it's usually not quick enough to keep up with the speaker and so all you've got is you've got it logged for next time they say it it's conceivable i think that one day the computers might be quick enough to compare what they're saying and go oh you don't have a word for steaming pile of rubbish here 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 here's here's a word for it um, they may be able to do that, and maybe that might be the future that instead of tablets, we have heads-up displays, which you can see through, mm. and the computer live puts that on the HUD. I think, I think it's entirely possible at the moment. Yeah, although that is that is probably more supporting technology. That's not really machine interpreting. Yeah. So I, yeah. But certainly, I mean, there's lots of, lots of good use cases for technology to help a human interpreter, that's for sure. But yeah. that, that probably Absolutely. would be at least two more episodes. <laughs> so I don't know what, what you guys think. How much time get... do you guys have? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, should we get to, to the questions? Because um, Stan and Irina are telling us that some questions have come, come in. So maybe we uh, we can take a look sure. at them, what do you think? Do you want to read them? Absolutely. the chat window here. <gasps> <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much. It was a fantastic discussion. Let me ask some questions from the audience. Okay, the first one is, it's, it is rather a comment, uh, not a question. Uh, sure. Troublesome chirps online, live, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we feel the same, believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very surreal. Yeah. Very surreal. Do you think especially you... because we usually don't do video, we just do an audio conference call. Yeah. So there you go. Now you know why. <laughs> yeah. But I also don't think that Jonathan usually is looking this fancy. No, there's no tinsel usually, I think. Uh, Although I like it. You, you should wear it every time. Yeah, Is this his Christmas outfit? A uh, question. There is one question. <laughs> I believe it is. <laughs> As near as you're going to get, I have two children under the age of six, so that's why this isn't wrapped in my neck. Uh, a question and a question and a comment from uh, Interpret America. I don't know if it's uh, Barry Olson himself, but uh, uh, the comment is: uh, Do you know that the pilot has uh, already shipped? Just started this week. Should see some reviews in the next months or so. Okay, I'm very much looking That's forward to, to those reviews. Yeah, it's good to know. It, it's very good. It's very good to know because there is nothing quite beat hype. Uh, nothing is quite better at beating hype than a cold hard dose of reality. 
Ja. Ja. At least a fair, fair test, a fair review. The same thing not, happened to the Pixel Buds. Exactly, yeah. What I'm not quite sure about with the Pilot is whether, because I think it's you get two earbuds, and I think the idea is that you share them, which I find a little bit gross, to be honest. Yeah. Would, you probably want some antiseptic wipes with you to clean them up before you give them someone else to put them That's into their ear. waiting to happen, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I'd probably I'd probably rather stick to the to the Google Translate app in that case. I don't know, but I'm 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 certainly very much looking forward to uh, to hearing more about the pilot and and how well it works. Um, honestly, I'm very curious to see that. If I go to an interacting job, I'm going to say to the client, "You would you like to poke your finger in my ear?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, one more question from Jess Tomlinson: What are blue scores? Oh, do you, you want to take this, Jonathan? Oh, blue scores. Blue scores are one of the standard tests for machine translation algorithms to see how good they are. It's spelled B L E U, I think. Yep. It's, a, it's an um, acronym. It, it's a standardized test, and like all standardized tests, if, if you make the aim of the game to pass a standardized test, you get lots of things that are good at passing the standardized test. Um, I'm by no means being iconoclastic and saying that they have their faults. If you go on scholar.google.com and look up blue score plus machine translation, you will find hundreds of papers and every couple of years they test the best algorithms and blue scores are one of the tests that they do because they found when they got human evaluators, they were inconsistent. Hey, you know, humans evaluate translation consistently. Yeah. Um, so blue scores is their supposedly object, one of their supposedly objective tests. And so, yeah, we'll see. It's a lab yeah, test. Just one quick <laughs> Exactly, one quick remark. So, so BLEU stands for Bilingual Evaluation Understudy. Beautiful acronym. Uh, and um, it's uh, it's apparently it's an algorithm. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's something that you use to evaluate the quality of machine translation and to see how good it is or how bad it is. But, yeah, as Jonathan said, uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, I guess. Of, of the blue holder. <laughs> take, take it with as large a, 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 a pinch of salt as you imagine Scottish people putting yeah. on their chips. Like like this one. A big pack of salt. Uh, but but again, again there, there's an underlying question, and I know that on the entire conference dedicated to this, what is quality in interpreting? If you have an answer, you can win a Nobel. Yes. <laughs> Please let us know. We'll have you on the show. Yeah. Absolutely. We should probably do a show about quality and interpreting at some point. Take, I'll make it up. That, that's like a, an entire life. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a 10-episode a ten period. Have we got any more questions that we can use to mercilessly destroy lab tests? Sorry about that. Uh, one more question. Yeah, sure, bring it on, Stan. <clears throat> One more question. Uh, as we understand, AI will take all the routine work, but all hard and difficult parts will remain in human translators' hands. As a result, only stronger ones, intelligent ones, uh, will survive. Do you think the same? Well, it's a, it's a very Darwinian. Very. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess there's a there's a grain of truth in there. Certainly, I mean that a there's lots of talk now. I mean, I think Jonathan mentioned it earlier that AI is going to take over the world and what have you, which is is to be taken again with a huge pack of salt, ideally. Um, so what what is happening certainly is that AI is moving into lots of jobs and um, it, and is helping people. So far, I haven't seen an awful lot of job replacement. Because of AI, maybe that's going to happen. I don't know, but but most of these lists are BS to a large extent. The good thing is, however, that translation and interpreting is usually very very low on the list, or you know, is is usually uh, a profession where they say there's a, a very what you say is a, a small probability of being automated or replaced, which is good for us, and mm. that seems to be a consistent trend, at least in the lists that I've I've seen in recent months. So that's good. But the, the problem, I think, with these lists of, okay, these are the professions that will die because of automation is usually that it's very black or white. So they look at translation and interpreting, for example, or, I don't know, some profession. And we all, sorry? Accountancy is one that always appears high in the list. 
Yeah, that's I, true. But the, the problem is, it's it's usually a black and white thing. But that's yeah. not true in reality, as we know. There is no, there's no such thing as translation and interpreting. Full stop. There's so many yeah. shades of gray. Sorry, but so many facets to that, and it's it's not just black and white. It depends on the language. It depends on the topic. It, yeah. There's so many dependencies that you cannot just go ahead and say, "Well, profession X will die because of AI." That's just BS. One of the greatest examples is IBM Watson is now assisting doctors with medical diagnoses. And the funny thing that they found is that even though IBM Watson is more accurate than a human doctor, the diagnosis is not the entire job, which is really, really weird that no one actually told them that in the first place. Um, and there was an AI researcher recently writing that the number one skill that we're we're going to need two big skills in the future. One is people skills and the second is creative thinking. And I thought, well, hold on, you're basically writing a skills list for what interpreters need. Yeah. Um, interpreting for me is language skills, people skills, and critical thinking. Um, interpreting seem safe. Um, so, yeah, like Alex Drexel, I would take these lists with a pinch of salt. I would say, however, that the trends I'm already seeing in the industry, if you discount the nonsense and the sheer hell that that public service and court interpreters are being put through that's not of their own making, largely we're seeing the lower the lower paid and the lower added value interpreters come under massive strain in translation. Basically, the low end of the market is disappearing as we speak. Um, yeah. If that's happening in translation, we can expect that to happen in interpreting too, which again is why I wrote the, is why I'm writing the book, but I won't give too much away. Um, but, but the point is that if you are doing a job which a machine could do, a machine will do it. Yeah, that's the point. I mean, there, there are some jobs, but I think those have already gone a while ago, yeah. like just pure data entry. So there's there's this um, this guy, Benedict Evans, who had a nice photo up on Twitter or two, actually, where there was a photo from the 60s. So a huge office floor full of people with typewriters putting data into punch cards or on paper and that's and he said this is basically an excel spreadsheet nowadays which is brutal but mm. it's true but i mean those those jobs i think have been gone for a long time now for, for a while so yeah well, but it's the creativity and, and i'm beginning to think increasingly that it's especially the critical thinking that you mentioned jonathan and basically the, the bs filter that you have as an interpreter that that you reflect on what comes out of your mouth because a machine doesn't care if it's wrong or if it makes sense it'll just continue to blather out stuff you know it could be right it could be wrong the machine doesn't care and we do we do care and i think that's that's a big a big thing do you, do you have anything to add uh, alex g you've been unusually quiet for an interpreter over the past little while He's contemplating. No, something. I was just thinking about what you guys were saying, and there's really nothing that I can add because it's pretty much covering everything. And I, I do think it was a very black or white um, perspective to take on the matter. And I think you guys have pretty much said it all. Yeah, there's nothing. I'm just being quiet because there's nothing that I can add to that. <laughs> were there any any other questions, Dan? Then let us know. That. Yeah, uh, uh, Esther Navarra Hall asks um, Hi, Esther. a question. Uh, most of us agree that the technology is not there yet to take the place of a professional interpreter. Can we start a conversation on how we can go about making use of what's already there? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we did to some extent. Right place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, Jonathan mentioned a few things like you know, sort of the futuristic stuff like the heads-up display and um, I guess term extraction or entity extraction from what's coming in through the headphones to the interpreter to, to aid us. Um, then, of course, term extraction in the, in the preparatory stage before an assignment, that kind of thing. Um, that wasn't really the, the topic, I think, of today's episode, but it's, it's certainly there and it's certainly something that we can make use of. Absolutely. Yeah. This is where I kind of have to completely just let the two Alexes say stuff because I'm trying to move towards paperless and trying to work out how this technology thing works um, and realizing that one of the questions that I'm asking myself is what's the steepness of the learning curve mm. and how quickly do I get payback on this? 
So for instance, um, when I was doing more translation, I thought of using CAT tools on the regular CVs that I got. And I realized that actually for those jobs, because of formatting and various things, the preparatory stage and the learning curve were going to mean that I wasn't going to make my money back for several months. Mm. Now, okay, I made my money back over, I don't know, a year, two years. But my thought was, well, actually, usually when those jobs come in, I'm trying to get them out of the system as quickly as possible. So no, um, with interpreting tools, I'm having to ask myself the same the same question is that I would love to go all technological with term tools and all of these things, and I would love to do it. But the question for me is, what does the curve look like, and how soon do I get ROI? Uh, mm. And I, would, I want to see tools that are ergonomic, not in the sense of I'm not going to get RSI using them, but ergonomic in the sense... They fit the workflow that I already have, and I'm not having to create a new workflow to make this thing work. Um, I've, I'm, I know the Alexes will tell me the tools already exist, and go and buy this app and that app. But personally, I've just got news. It tells you how low tech I am at the moment. That I've just realised how amazing Evernote is. The past six months, I've had like an Evernote epiphany. <laughs> so goodness knows how long it will take me to, you know, adopt automated term extraction. Well, I'm desperate for automated term extraction. I haven't found a good tool yet. Sketch engine. <laughs> Give Sketch <Thank> engine a <clears> try. <throat> two more questions, short questions, I suppose. Mm, the first one, um, you know, uh, attendees like your badges, badges and they, uh, <laughs> they they ask uh, whether you sell any merch or do, do you sell them? <laughs> Where can they get this? Um, actually, no, for the, for the moment, we're not selling these. I mean, these I just made um, because I wanted to. <laughs> so I, I, I made a small batch and I, and I sent some to uh, Jonathan and Alex. And I sent some to our... Uh, First, super fan. Quick shout out to Jesse Tomlinson. Um, hey, she Jesse. got some. Um, but if you're interested in badges, stickers, or whatever, please drop us a note on um, on Twitter. You can approach us through our Twitter channel, Trouble Terps, or just individually. Um, I'm happy to take orders, and uh, I'll make sure I get them to you. We're not we're not seeking to make a lot of money of them, so uh, happy to just do it for for the fans, as it were. Fan <laughs> service. Yeah, we, we, we've actually had discussions about this and, you know, but, but this is the point is because we did this podcast not to make a lot of money and to become superstars. Um, it actually shocked me recently when, when someone said, do you know, um, Troublesome Terps is now an influence on interpreting and I thought, oh, please no, please no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. This is how far it's come. Yeah. But, but it, this was always the point of the what podcast. Is there are some topics that if you bring up in meetings of interpreters, they look at you like you really want to discuss that. And machine <laughs> interpreting is safe. But our last episode, we did one on mental health, and the overwhelming responses that I got was, thank you for making it okay to talk about that. And I thought, well, that's yeah. basically our job, is that, you know, if we can put our careers on the line, you know, um, clients don't really mind. But, you know, if we can be the ones opening the doors to talk about this stuff and to say, you know what, let's talk about machine interpreting in a, a chilled out, calm way, then we'll do it. Um, so, yeah, if people want us to start selling merch and maybe we can get t shirts. Uh, you know, I, I listened to a one hour podcast and all I got was this daft t shirt, you know. <laughs> Hashtag Jonathan. <laughs> which one's the cute one? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I know who's the cute one tonight, that's for sure. It's not me, it's you, Jonathan. I know, the sparkly one. <laughs> the sparkly one. <laughs> I've been called anything the sparkly. It's not one of the things I've been called before. There you go. Do, do, do we have any more questions that we can use to make a video? I want to take this off because it's really itchy. Uh, and uh, the last question for for today, uh, but uh, I don't know if you can uh, answer this question right now. I think that uh, my proposal is to hold a separate webinar for this question in 2018. Oh, oh God. Uh, what do you do if you don't know a word? <laughs> I will let you take that one, Jonathan. What did you tell the client who asked you about that? Uh, Okay, when it's clients, I say interpreters are trained to be able to make an informed decision through their knowledge of the context or something like that. 
Um, That's kind of my get-go answer as well. I always yeah. say, well, you know, that entirely depends on the context. I cannot yeah. answer that question. It's, we're trained professionals, you know. When, it, when it's a friend and someone who's, who's not going to tell anyone, I say, you know, um, interpreting is 80% preparation, 10% perspiration, and 10% creativity. That's nice. <laughs> That's a good equation. Preparation thing the wrong way around. But, but, but you know, maybe it's time that we admit to clients that we're trying our best to make the thing work. And um, sometimes and we're just making it up. But, you know, how many... Um, I, the, the most recent interpreting job I did, there was a mix-up with the languages of interpreters hired. I have to finish with this story. And they hired Italian inter- uh, They hired Italian interpreters when what they really needed was Spanish. Oh, no. <laughs> the French people were absolutely fine. We were like, yeah, we can do French all day, you know. Um, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But the, the Italian booth realized that actually, okay, they would notice if they heard Italian when what they wanted was Spanish. <laughs> so one, one of the people in the Italian booth had Spanish as a B language, but had, wasn't comfortable doing English to Spanish, mm-hmm. but was totally in her comfort zone doing Italian to Spanish. So her booth mate says, great, what we'll do is I'll do Italian, we'll have an internal relay in the booth, and then you can do Italian to Spanish. So they talk to the sound guy from the best um, interpreting sound people in, in the UK, bar none. AV department are the best. <laughs> Guys, can I get money off my next order, please? AV department are incredible. Uh, and the AV department guy rigged up an internal relay in the booth. So for oh. the entire job, they were interpreting the whole time. And it gets to the end of the, the two-day job, and we're kind of chatting to the clients, and the clients are giving us compliments, but saying, you know, at times, the, the Spanish uh, the Spanish people are saying at times the Spanish sounded a little bit uh, as if there was a delay on the Spanish. Mm. Okay, and we realized then we have to come clean. And when we came clean to the clients and explained, we became hero. Well, the Spanish booth, they didn't care about the French booth. The Spanish <laughs> kind of hybrid booth suddenly became heroes and they went, you mean you did that to make this work? You're amazing. And we <laughs> yes. thought we were about to we thought we were about to get our heads chewed. Well, we thought they were about to get our heads chewed off. But actually, there was like, you're that dedicated to making this thing work. And it's yeah. like, yes, but we care. Uh, the number one blog post that shocked clients is the one that I wrote, Interpreters Care. Um, and that caring really made that client go, wow, this is different to what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Um and that's maybe a message that we need to push that we actually, you know, yes, we care about accuracy and blah, blah, but we really care about the event being a success. Um, and yeah, that little bit of caring, maybe that's our secret weapon. I don't know. Could be. You'll have to read the book to find out if it gets published. <laughs> the magic and mystery of interpreting. Do you want to do we care or don't we? Do you want us to pressure the publisher? <laughs> In the, it's going to be in the, hand, the proposal is going to be in the hands of re, the reviewers very soon. So if you happen to be listening to this podcast and you get an email saying, can you review this book on the AI future of interpreting? <laughs> there might be a badge in your future. I'm, I'm not offering yeah. a break. <laughs> and it, it, offering a break. The least you can do is just keep your fingers crossed for Jonathan. Yes, yes, please. And when the pre-orders come out now... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say more because we're actually finishing soon. <laughs> Did we get any further question? I mean, I could do this all night, you know. I'm having such a <laughs> yeah, great time. Yeah, actually, this whole Q&A part is really fun. We should do a Q&A <laughs> See, what, what people don't realize about a troublesome term recording is you hear about an hour to an hour 20. We record... <laughs> and then Alexander Drexel, who I must say is the mature, skilled one amongst the troublesome terps who saves their bacon every time. <laughs> What he does is he goes through all of our nonsense and goes, well, I'll take that bit, I'll take that bit. And it makes us sound joined up and sensible. Yeah. yeah. So now you know what we actually sound like when yeah. I record it. That's true. The, the outtakes is usually the most fun part. So. Well, but I have to say, we were really good tonight. I mean, look at it. It's basically yeah. almost exactly an hour. And we didn't, yeah. yeah, we were on message, on time, on point. I think we did a good job. <laughs> yeah, a perfect, a perfect job. Yeah, I can say <laughs> perfectly adequate. Yeah, really, really standards of perfection. 
<laughs> I like I like uh, preparation, perspiration, and creativity. I can say the yeah. same about uh, hosting the webinars. You know, actually. <laughs> That's true. Can, can, That's true. Can we yeah. tell them what happened five minutes before start time when we really should? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I can so say that until one much. minute before we started, I didn't hear anything. So there you go. But now it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it works for an hour. <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> um, thank you so much, dear speakers. It was a fantastic discussion, a fantastic, fantastic speech, a fantastic episode. I, I, I don't know what else to say. Thank you so much. Um, Thanks to thank you for having us. Uh, thank you, thank you thank to the you. attendees for for your questions. If you would have more questions, feel free to write them in the comments, and we uh, we ask the speakers yeah. to answer later. Uh, maybe in the future episodes, I don't know. Yeah, I was just going to say. So maybe maybe at some point we should do sort of an open Q and A episode where we just collect comments yeah. and questions from everyone and then just go through them for one episode that would be, that fun. Would be super fun you can leave them in the comments of the video or you can you can go to troubledherbs.com and leave a comment well, one of the things i would really love to do because we've never been in a room together um if there are any conference organizers listening my like stretch goal is that one day we would have all three troublesome terps on stage as a keynote at a conference. No idea how that would work or if it would work. <laughs> yeah, more like the closing keynote, I think. Yeah, the, the, the closing keynote when everyone's going, I've got a train to catch. <laughs> <laughs>